Follow the Prophet is a production of Gingrich 360 and iHeartRadio. So you know the phrase nine to five? Well, for decades, that has been unfortunately the metric of working full time. You know, just a simple eight hour day. Well, one study that we looked at showed that half of those under 35 that have a full-time job, get this, also have a side gig. And I think naturally that's because people are aware of the ever-changing economic landscape and they want to plan for contingencies. And of course, they need the extra money. We here at Follow the Profit will spotlight the passing of a very influential internet billionaire and all the events that surrounded his passing. And we'll also talk to the co-founder of a popular food chain who's going to give us the realities of opening and managing a successful restaurant. On that note, I'm David Grasso, and this is, of course, Follow the Profit. So if you're expecting a motivational get-rich-quick show, then go find another podcast. There's plenty of those. We here at Follow the Profit always deconstruct what's going on in the economy, politics, and finance in a way that you can understand so that you can use your money to help you yourself follow the profit. There are a number of things that bring a smile to people's faces, puppies, winning lottery tickets, and naturally pizza. More than 80% of people eat pizza at least once a month, and I imagine that's global because pizza's everywhere. But here in the United States, the pizza industry makes $40 billion annually. So how do you stand out in a sea of pizza makers? Well, Blaze Pizza made its name by creating artisanal, personal pizzas with dough made in-house and topped with all-natural ingredients. And it's all done fast and fresh. And one of the people who developed that method is Brad Kent. He's the co-founder of Blaze Pizza. And not only is he a chef that runs his own restaurant, he's also a food scientist. So we have here Brad today. How are you doing, Brad? I'm doing as well as I can these days. So let's rewind back in time, Brad. Pizza. Are you a cook? You're a food scientist, evidently. Like, Where on earth did you have the moment where you said, I want to get into the most, what I consider the most challenging industry out there. The most challenging industry being the pizza industry or the restaurant industry? I mean, I think you picked the hardest of the hardest. So the restaurant industry is terrible. And then pizza on top of that? Oh my God. Well, I think there was such a wide open gap in the pizza industry and the pizza industry had already proven itself to be a very lucrative piece of the pie, so to speak, that it made a ton of sense to do something like Blaze, which was this assembly line, very fresh, high quality ingredients at that affordable price point. There wasn't anything in that space about 10 years ago. But why did you start cooking? Like, what is the original like push into like develop a career in this space? Well, I went to college to study business and I had no idea that you could do a career in food that wasn't even an option. I was supposed to be what my parents called a professional. So that was either a business person, a lawyer, or a doctor. Those were my three choices. And and a business person, I really didn't know what that meant. So I studied business, and I was supposed to start a business out of college. And I started it while in college. I started a catering business just because I had such a great passion for food. In fact, in my dorm, where we weren't allowed to have any sort of cooking devices, I snuck a toaster oven into my room, kept it under the bed, and I would bake things in there and mix them and, and clean the dishes in the in the shared restroom. 
I've been cooking a long time. It is a true passion of mine. And, and I'm just fortunate that I get to do what I love on a daily basis. Yeah, Brad, that's really funny. I've always joked that my parents, you know, being from an immigrant family, always handed me a form when I was a kid. What would you like to be, doctor, lawyer, or entrepreneur? <laughs> so I guess you chose the latter. <laughs> but first, you got a bachelor's in food science. What's food science? Yeah, so I didn't know there was such a thing as a food scientist when I got into food. I just knew that that I really wanted to have a retail line of products on the shelves at the grocery store. And I didn't know how to go about that. I thought if I started a catering business in Los Angeles, which is where I was, I would meet some movie stars, cater for them. They would give me money and and I would use their leverage with the notoriety to develop my own brand. That happened, but my own brand was a, a catering business in Los Angeles, not a retail line of foods. So the circuitous route that I took, I ended up going to culinary school out of business school, studied culinary arts, and actually ironically got recruited at CIA for my culinary degree, working as a food scientist for a company that made products for the sports nutrition industry. From there, the owner of that company found this interesting product, which was a performance bar that was developed by the Department of Defense called the HUA bar that was proven to improve performance on humans. And that was something we weren't able to test on humans because we weren't the military. And he said, you should go get a job there. And so I went to try to get a job there. And they said, you can't get a job here without a degree in food science. So I went back to school, got my degree in food science, and I created a position for myself at Department of Defense as a food scientist. And they created a position for me. And that's how I uh, got into that field. And a food scientist with the Department of Defense works on developing products that meet all of the stringent demands of the military, which will be shelf life, safety, and nutrition over the life of that product. And it also has to taste good. And that was something that was new to the food science industry in the time that I started in this industry, which was early 2000. Processed foods didn't taste very good. And that was because food scientists are like uh, lawyers, I guess, and in that they, they put a lot of stuff in there just to make sure that they're protected. And it doesn't always taste good. So they would put preservatives in there. They would process foods heavily. So you'd lose color and texture and flavor. And uh, the niche I created and where I worked specifically on in the military was creating foods that had better taste, better texture, and that full shelf life um, to create a safe product that hopefully soldiers would, would find delicious two, three years after it was manufactured. So Brad, but you said you went to CIA, which I imagine is Culinary Institute of America for our listeners, right? Because I'm hearing <laughs> CIA and then Department <laughs> yeah. of Defense. I don't want to muddy yeah. the waters here. So that was right. a, that was yeah. a culinary no. school, correct? <laughs> yeah, that yeah, I went to the Culinary Institute of America in New York, not not the other CIA. And and yes, I, even though I did have secret clearance when I worked for the DOD, I never worked for the CIA. Okay, great. Because we don't want to kick off this podcast by saying the founder of Blaze Pizza was in the CIA. <laughs> so once you got this degree and you got this experience with the Department of Defense, I mean, that's a very unusual career path. And you kind of reverse engineered it. You understood that you needed a degree in food science. And then you went back to the Department of Defense. What did you learn during your time there that helped you be a more effective businessman later? That is actually why I'm in pizza, is from working at DOD, I, I learned that I was working with the brightest of the bright that were food scientists. And their specializations were so focused that I learned there that I could never be a master of food. I could only master one thing. 
and really I wanted to be a food scientist to understand all foods. And um, I decided to just focus on one thing from learning from these scientists. So my focus became pizza. And that's where I began developing the business plan for what turned out to be Blaze actually was when I working at DOD. So before we get into the entrepreneurship part of this, like what is it the actual science of your pizza? And I, I hear that you are the pizza whisperer. So what sort of strategic decisions did you make from a scientific standpoint that sets your pizza apart? After working for the Department of Defense, I got a job as a food scientist and in marketing for a food manufacturer that made natural products that went into Trader Joe's and a number of chain restaurants. And one of those chain restaurants was California Pizza Kitchen. And the way that they worked was, I thought, backward. The chef would give the recipe to us. We would have to make it manufacturable. And that wasn't always easy to get the exact same results of a product. So what I thought would be a unique approach to pizza would be to develop a product that could scale and be manufacturable from the onset. That is what made Blaze able to grow so fast is that from day one, we had a scalable product, which is not how people start the restaurant world, especially when they are expanding into a global brand. You tried first frozen pizza, right? And that didn't exactly pan out because frozen pizza, I guess, funny enough, isn't very profitable, is it, Brad? Um, no. And one of the products that I worked on when I was working at as a food scientist for the natural foods manufacturer was was products that were ended up into frozen foods. And the cost needs to be so low on products that the quality can't be high enough to meet at least the demands I had for what I wanted to represent who I am. And you'd have to sell a pizza for probably $20 at retail, which people just aren't willing to spend to have something of superior high quality. Then Blaze Pizza is born. So what is the creation myth of Blaze Pizza? Where was the first one? How did you turn it into a national chain? And why is your pizza good? So I've got like the two distinct backgrounds. One is in food science, one is in culinary arts. When I started, they, those two didn't converge, really. It was either food science or culinary arts. And, and when I develop recipes now, and when I developed recipes, I didn't uh, even early on in my career as a food scientist, I, I was a chef first. So I had to make them taste good in order to pass the muster. I created products for Blaze that tasted good, were scalable, and also I, I used the business degree to make sure that they were affordable from day one as well. So that combination is how you win in the restaurant world. It has to be delicious, affordable, repeatable, and scalable. We're going to take a quick break here. Be right back. What have you learned and what have been the significant challenges of being an entrepreneur? In pizza or an entrepreneur in general? Uh, <laughs> however you'd like to take it, Brad. When I was in high school, I was 15 years old. My dad said, okay, you're 15 now. You're going to be driving soon. You need to get a job. And I said, but I don't want to get a job. This is much more fun not working and just sponging off of you. And so he said, no, you have to have a job and you have to have one by the end of this week. And so I said, well, I'm just going to start a business then. And he said, well, what, what are you going to do? You don't have any skills. And I said, but I love cars. I'm going to start a car cleaning business. And he's like, okay, well, you have until the end of the week. If you don't have a job by Saturday, Monday, we're going to go get a job together. So I created flyers. This was in the 80s. I photocopied them. I drew a picture of a car on it and I created a price. I said, $35, I will detail your car. This was back in the 80s. And I handed them out to all my neighbors. And I had 
business that weekend. And from there, I did a good job and they referred me to people. By the time I graduated high school, I had over 300 customers and very regular business. And I was able to do whatever I wanted in high school. Brad, do you feel like it was your parents that instilled that entrepreneurial spirit in you? No, it's not. It was me. <laughs> I think my parents have the entrepreneurial spirit, but they were afraid because they grew up from Jewish immigrant parents. And I believe that what was instilled in them was be a professional, just like they told me, go get your degree in college, go do your thing and be a doctor or a lawyer or a business person. And we don't know what business person means, but never was it create your own business. In fact, when I started my catering business in college, my grandma, who was my dad's mother, said to me, are you sure you want to do catering? There's so many people in food out there. Why don't you choose something else? Son? <laughs> like, but grandma, like, I love this. <laughs> what do you want me to do? Something I don't love? So one of the things on Follow the Prophet that we love to talk about is coming out of the closet to your parents. And I'm not talking about sexuality here. I'm talking about that you want to do something that, you know, is kind of against the ethos of your family, right? Like yeah. being a chef is very blue collar and telling your immigrant family that. Yeah. How did you do it? Were they just shocked? Yeah. So my grandma lived in L.A. I lived in L.A. She must have called my dad. And then my dad uh, called me, which in my lifetime, I think he's called me maybe 20 times. Yeah, we're very close, but he's not the type to, to call or visit. And he said, I hear you're starting a catering business. And I said, yeah. And he's like, is this a vocation or an avocation? And I said, well, it's both. He's like, he gave me another time period. He's like, you need to be successful at this by such and such, or I'm cutting you off because they helped me pay my mortgage. And I had a job just catering odd jobs and that was covering my bills. And he said, well, if you don't have a job by this period of time, or if the business isn't successful by then, you need to go work for somebody else. So I said, fine. So I became a consultant. I consulted to restaurants, which is crazy because I never had a culinary degree. I had no training. I'd never worked in a restaurant, but yet I was catering parties for the who's who in Los Angeles at the time, which was really odd. I did like Creative Artists Agency was one of my first clients and I did their Christmas party out of my condo. You know, it's like crazy stuff. So how does it feel now that you walk around like I'm in places as dissimilar as Pasadena, California, and Orlando, Florida, and you see your brand everywhere? What does that immigrant family think now? So, you know, Blaze has we have three, about 350 locations. We're in uh, what, six countries, you know, including a lot in the Middle East. And um, my dad finally, again, he reached out to me on another one of those calls last year. This is after we like had all this success. And he said, I think you're going to be okay. So I finally got his approval. But personally, I don't feel successful in the food space yet. There's like this number I want to, we've been hovering at 350 locations. That's always been my threshold to break. Once we break 350 restaurants, then I will be happy. So um, I, I always set goals and, and I look at the finish line instead of the, the path there. As you can tell, like my, educationally, it's never been a direct path. And the same thing in business. I, I, I look at the goal only. Brad, you're making me feel like a slacker. I think I'm not doing enough now. What countries are you in abroad? So yeah, UAE, Kuwait, Saudi Arabia, Abu Dhabi, Dubai, and Bahrain. So you pick something that your family was against. You pick something that all the odds were against you. You pick pizza. Pizza's really hard. So how did you sustain yourself in times when you almost failed? Was there a moment that you really thought, I'm not going to make it? No, it's again, it's that looking at the goal line. So the goal line is like, this has to work because I don't have a backup plan. 
I learned that high quality ingredients and good technique will always create good food. If you can do that affordably and you give them good service, people will come and they'll come back. You don't have to market necessarily to them. They will find you. So speaking of those goals, I'd like to know more. How many locations would you like to see? Would you like to see this as a franchisable model? Like what are your expansion plans? For well, Blaze is franchised. That's how we grew so fast. That That's a beautiful model. Because imagine how much money it would take to build 350 locations, you know, at roughly 700,000, 600,000 a piece. You need millions of dollars just to build restaurants. But when you have that franchise model, you can leverage on the infrastructures of these individual businesses that already have business. You know, some of our franchisees have 200 locations of, of other businesses that they operate themselves. So that was the model. A lot of modern food outlets, though, have moved away from the franchisee model. As we see, you know, Starbucks, you can't franchise it. Chick-fil-A, sort of. It's kind of a hybrid model. What made you harken back to the roots of the franchisable model? There's a couple challenges with, with franchising, and, and, and that is that with the franchise fees and with the cost of doing business, can the franchisee make money? And so the beautiful thing about pizza, again, is we're selling, you know, the, the main ingredient is, is flour and water and air, and then you top it with expensive things like cheese and, and meat toppings. And But meat toppings on a pizza, there's not a lot. If you actually were to weigh the pizza toppings themselves, you're, not, you're only going to get a, a few ounces. And that's how you can afford to do pizza. Yeah, it's really interesting that you've brought back that model. I've actually written about this phenomenon where there's fewer and fewer companies that are franchising. So hats off to you for bringing back that very important way for entrepreneurs to have a highway for entrepreneurship. And those entrepreneurs can be the people that work in the restaurant too. Many people that are franchisees started by working from franchise systems themselves and earned enough money to buy a location and then that became two or four and then they have you know dozens and they become multi multi-millionaires some without a high school even or college education as you know mcdonald's has created more black and brown millionaires than any other company in this country and my aunt is actually one of them so i understand the importance of franchises in america and i've been concerned that we've been moving away from that you seem to have this like relentless drive, right? So can we get into, you know, Brad's brain for a second and understand why you're never discouraged? I think birth order has something to do with it. I'm the youngest and I got my way a lot. And I think that getting my way is just, that's in me. So if I don't get it, I will continue to kick and scream. And, you know, that doesn't work in business, but, you know, it's clawing and working extra hours. So I will continue to push hard and, until I get, uh, you know, where I want to go. If that's all that there is to it. It's just hard work, work ethic. Let's talk about Uber Eats and Grubhub and all that. How have you as, as an entrepreneur working with those platforms, but we all read the articles that businesses are kind of getting squeezed by those platforms. I ordered food last night for my family and on one of the platforms from a restaurant on the platform, it increased my check by $60 because of service fees, delivery fees, and markup because the restaurant's just trying to sell the product for roughly the same profit margin as if they were to sell it from the restaurant. But I decided away from that, save $60 and order directly from the restaurant and picked it up myself. We haven't seen the last of the, the controversy around those platforms, because if you actually dig into the fees of how much it costs to get that food to your house, it's a financial weapon of mass destruction. And not only that, it's terrible for restaurants. Right. And are they making money yet? Those third parties? I don't understand how that works. How, how do you have a multi-billion dollar company with no profit? 
So a lot of people have their dream of owning their own restaurant, right? What works? What doesn't work? Can you do it on a small budget? Like, is this the right time? Yeah. Oh, it's definitely the right time. Right now, I think you're going to be able to negotiate some very good leases. And especially if you get some long-term leases, you'll you'll benefit. There's so many restaurants that have failed recently that you could get in to a turnkey operation where you're not even going to spend any money on, on build-out. So this would be the time to get into the restaurant business. Okay. Well, I want to end in a cheesy way, no pun intended here. What is your favorite pizza that you offer and why should we eat it? My favorite pizza that is offered anywhere, including Blaze, is uh, we call it the red vine, but it's basically a margarita pizza. And I was just talking to someone about margarita pizza. A margarita pizza represents all the seasons. If you think about what the key ingredients are on there, there's wheat. In many ca- most cases, it'll be winter wheat. You have tomatoes. Those are harvested in summer. You have extra virgin olive oil, which is harvested in the fall. So you are tasting the entire year in one bite. And now we go to the what you're tasting. You've got complete sensory meltdown, as it's called in the, in the, in the sensory science industry, where you've got crunchy from the crust, you've got chewy, you've got hot, you've got tepid, cold, chewy, stringy, and then you've got savory, umami, acidic, sweet, every taste you could imagine, including like just the, the browning on, on the crust. So you've got everything in, and it's healthy. Margarita pizza is healthy. Our margarita pizza or our, our red vine pizza at Blaze is about 600 calories for the entire pizza. So it's not a fattening food uh, as pizza has been kind of deemed and it, it, it is not. Pizza is as healthy as you want it to be, and it's as fresh as you want it to be, and it's as seasonal as you want it to be. It's it's the perfect food. Well, on that note, Brad, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. I'm now inspired to go back to Blaze Pizza right down the road here in Orlando, Florida at Disney Springs. If you haven't been there, it is a massive, massive place. So congrats on all your success, Brad. Thank you, David. It's been so much fun talking to you. We're going to take a quick break here. Be right back. If you consider that there are over seven and a half billion people on the planet, I can probably tell you with a lot of certainty that the majority of them want to be wealthy, like billionaire level wealthy. Well, among those seven and a half billion people populating the earth, there are about only 2000 billionaires on the planet. So they're actually a pretty rare breed. And one of these billionaires who unfortunately passed was named Tony Shea. And his life was one just defined by extraordinary achievement. And his death was very puzzling to a lot of his friends, families, fans, and business contacts. And here on Follow the Prophet, we want to take a harder look at what made Tony rise to this extraordinary level of success. And as well as really taking a fair look at what demons he had to battle with all along the way. So Tony was born over in Marin County. That's where the Golden Gate Bridge is, right across the bay from San Francisco in California. He was born to Taiwanese parents in 1973. And at a very young age, he demonstrated that he had an entrepreneurial talent. In college, he had the idea to buy whole pizzas and sell slices to his dorm roommates. And of course, he made a profit. He started following the profits super early. 
And later he created his first company called Link Exchange, which that focused on internet advertising. And he had a big payday when he sold that to Microsoft for a whopping $265 million. And guess this, Tony was only 25 years old. And a year later, he was one of those entrepreneurs that never really stopped. Tony took all that money that he made from that last exit when he sold to Microsoft, and he took $265 million and broke all the rules by selling shoes online. Shoes. You know, you think you want to touch, feel, and try on shoes in person. Well, e-commerce was exploding at the time, and Tony created the online shoe store Zappos, which Zappos comes from the word zapato in Spanish, which of course means shoe. And he did this all at the age of 26. God, I wasn't doing much at 26. And in 2009, Tony had another big payday when he sold Zappos to Amazon for more than a billion dollars. And he remained the CEO of Zappos. He made a billion dollars at the age of 36. I'm 36 right now. So I guess I could be a billionaire, but I'm not. At this one point, you would think that Tony would be like, okay, I've made it. I've made enough money. He can never spend all this money in his lifetime, even if he tried. Tony didn't do that. Zappos had a headquarters in Las Vegas, and he invested in revitalizing the old downtown and creating a sort of artistic and technological hub. And if you've ever been to downtown Vegas 10 years ago versus now, you would really see the difference. And Tony lived in a little Airstream and had a pet llama that was loose. I mean, he was an eccentric guy, but he really cared about the local community and really spent the last decade of his life really investing in Las Vegas and its people. But at the same time, he started to engage in some peculiar activities. One, he became more distant from his friends and family in San Francisco and Vegas and began hanging around a new group in Park City, Utah. If you don't know about Park City, it's not that far from Salt Lake City, and it's actually a ski town. And he started buying up property there, had like a little posse following him around and was showering everyone with money. He also started engaging in some risky behavior. He became obsessed with how much his body could do without things such as food, urinating, and oxygen. And at the same time, he became fascinated with fire. In fact, he bought a mansion in Park City, Utah, and when a real estate agent paid a visit, he discovered that Tony had placed more than a thousand candles throughout the house. And despite all these oddities, the pet llama, the candles, the <laughs> starving himself, Tony still had some really good values. He wanted to make his friends' lives better, and he was a painful introvert, but he still got a lot of satisfaction from making other people happy. In August, Tony stepped down as the CEO of Zappos, which was quite a shocker at the time. I remember reading the article. And he had a party to celebrate his leaving the company at his mansion, the one with the candles in Park City, Utah. And he invited the singer Jewel, who I love. And Jewel showed up. She performed for a small crowd. And the next day, she left suddenly. Now, Jewel had to communicate a message. And funny enough, Tony was going through a digital cleanse, which that means, you know, he didn't have a smartphone in his hand and he really wasn't checking his email. So Jewel FedExed a letter to Tony. And according to Forbes, it said, and I quote, I'm going to be blunt. I need to tell you that I don't think you are well and in your right mind. I think you're taking way too many drugs that cause you to disassociate. The people 
you are surrounding yourself with are either ignorant or willing to be complicit in killing yourself. Oof. And Jewel, you called it because just a few months later in November, in the middle of the night, firefighters responded to a house fire at a three-story beachfront home in New London, Connecticut. He was at his girlfriend's house. And the radio traffic among the responders was someone stuck inside. And later the talk was there's someone trapped inside. And after that, it was described as someone was barricaded inside. So we really didn't know what happened that night, but Tony died and he was only 46 years old. Tony left a mess because Tony didn't even have a will. And that's really something that's important, especially when you're talking to your parents or anyone in your life. You got to plan for the worst. I know it's macabre and we don't want to talk about it, but sometimes people die and you need to leave a plan. And that's why estate planning is really, really important. Tony's death was not only a shock, but he had no will or estate plan. And, you know, this is surprisingly common. In fact, one study we looked at showed that for people making more than $75,000, only 55% of them have a will. So Tony, who was worth a billion dollars, didn't have one. Neither did the singer Prince. And Aretha Franklin had three handwritten wills. And of course, that caused problems with the estate. So how do you start making an estate plan? Many people don't because they don't want to face the inevitable. Yeah, it's really sad to think about your own demise, right? But financial planners all agree. You have to create a proper will. It's not for you. It's to make sure you don't leave a mess when it comes to distributing your assets to your loved ones. And not having one creates chaos and breaks up families. You know, you don't want to fracture your whole family because you died. They're already dealing with your loss. So make sure you have a plan. What does a plan look like? Well, number one, you have to have a will. And in that will, it needs to be detailed. You need to be specific as to who gets what. And that minimizes stress and the eventual fights that will break out. Two, you need to think about your health care. At some point, unfortunately, and we all don't want to think about this, you may be in a position at some point where you won't be able to make decisions about your own medical care. So be sure that the people who are helping you, your loved ones, your partners, et cetera, have the specific details as well as the power of attorney to go ahead and make those medical decisions for you. The next one is really important. Use a password manager and give someone you trust access to that password manager because you're going to need someone that gets into all of your accounts. Imagine how many accounts you have just for your bank, your car, your insurance, etc. In that same vein, think about papers. We live in a digital economy, right? But we still have deeds, life insurance docs, specific funeral arrangements. You need both passwords and papers, and those need to be ready in case you unfortunately die. So not something we want to think about, but really, really, really important. So looking back at Tony Shea's life, really one aspect of his life caught my attention. He founded the online shoe company Zappos, which he sold to Amazon for more than a billion dollars. But something we could learn from, Tony came up with a very interesting philosophy when it came to running his business. He really wanted to value experiences over having things. And he really practiced what he preached if you look at his life and where he lived. Here's how. Whenever a new employee started at Zappos, about a week after they started, Tony would take them aside and he would make them 
an offer. He called it the offer. He would tell the employee that if they liked working at Zappos, they could, of course, stay. But if they didn't like it, they could leave. And Tony would give them $1,000 to do so. Tony's rationale was simple. If the employee quit and took the 1000 bucks, they clearly did not have the same passion and vision than those who chose to stay. But why on earth would Tony want people to work there who didn't want to in the first place? Actually, you know what? The offer makes a lot of sense. Training employees is enormously expensive. In fact, some of the businesses that suffer the most are the ones that have the highest turnover. We have a saying that wood is cheap is ultimately expensive. We have to really think about how much it costs to hire and fire people. And Tony saw past all the BS and said, you know what? If I don't have the right person, they're going to take this quick $1,000. And really, it was a great way to weed out people. We want people who share our vision, who are passionate about what they're doing. If they don't share that sentiment, then they need to go because it's in a complete waste of time for the company as well as the employee. So I think Tony's philosophy was rock solid. And in fact, I don't even know how you do that through a human resources perspective or what a business manager would think about it. But Tony was pretty unconventional and he could really see that employee retention, employee satisfaction, and more importantly, employee productivity depended on having skin in the game and being committed to the vision of the founder. So thanks to all of you for joining me as we follow the profit. And a big thanks to Brad Kent, the co-founder of Blaze Pizza, for his insights on restaurants and the food industry. And a shout out to our team of producers, Emiliano Limon over in sunny Los Angeles and Scott Hantler over in cloudy New York. And of course, especially to our executive producers, Newt Gingrich and Debbie Myers. I'm your host, David Grasso. If you're enjoying the show, please rate us five stars and give us a review so that others can learn what the show is all about. Follow the Profit is a production of Gingrich 360 and iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.